0: Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Fred Sanders. Fred and I talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his forthcoming book on the Trinity and salvation. So a pretty Trinity-centric podcast, but I hope you'll enjoy our conversation about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and salvation, as these are two topics that we don't always address quite as much when we talk about the Trinity. And I think Fred is very helpful in helping us think through this. As always, we are brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all their latest offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now, my conversation with Fred Sanders. But first, no big deal. All right. So I have Fred Sanders on the line. Fred, uh, thanks for finally uh, being on the podcast after we circled this uh, throughout the pandemic and uh, tried to make it work. So yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. I emailed you and said uh, that I had this ominous unanswered email from March of 2020. And it was just, <laughs> it was the haunting reminder of the last year of, uh, of the world that we live in. So
1: yeah, I have a, there's a whole pocket of starred emails like these, this is important. Get back to it, but they're March twenty twenty, and I haven't gotten back to a lot of them. Like,
0: yeah, well, I that, care
1: about that one. I should reply.
0: <laughs> now, like that meme you sent me. It's just it's been it's been a long month. So, yeah. Um, all right. So, what I want to do today is talk about two things. One, talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you and uh, Oliver Crisp's um, explorations and constructive dogmatics with Zondervan. The latest volume is on the Holy Spirit. So, I thought we'd talk through maybe just a, a general doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Maybe get into some particularities of. Of, uh, your chapter in there, for example, uh, and then talk a little bit about the fountain of salvation, the Trinity and salvation that you're working on with Erdman's. Uh, so we'll start with the Holy Spirit and then move into that. So um, with the Holy Spirit conversation, I'm in the middle right now of teaching four uh, theology classes in which I will have to deal, actually five that I'll have to deal with the Holy Spirit, all five classes I'm teaching this semester. Mm-hmm. And uh, your, your chapter in this third person of the Trinity book was really helpful for me because you started off talking about uh, divine naming with the Holy spirit and why that's important and then move into missions and processions. And I guess I always default to missions, processions. I'll do the Trinity thing, try to, you know, help students understand that. And then I shoot kind of right off into, well, here's how he works in salvation. Uh, and I think you were helpful of sort of taking a little bit of step back and go, okay, look, we can talk a little bit more about the divine life and what the Bible says about who the spirit is in relation to God. So maybe start out talking through a little bit of your argument about uh, the Holy spirit and naming. And why yeah. that's important
1: yeah and if I could just do like a general um, sort of set the tone for an approach to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit um, I noticed that a lot of systematic theologians kind of get in the habit of apologizing about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit about right. you know how to, like I'm sorry there's just and I found myself wanting to apologize You're like You know, the names Father and Son function in certain ways. They're clear, they're given, they're acted out and dramatized in the Gospels. We have statements and teaching from Jesus about the Father and the Son. They're correlative. They're obviously correlative, you know, Father of the Son, Son of the Father. Um, And then you get to the name Holy Spirit, and you're like, well, it's sometimes, you know, the Greek varies. Is it the Spirit of the Holiness? Uh, Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the Son, Spirit of Jesus Christ? Um, the spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament. And you find yourself kind of wanting to like, I'm sorry, it's so sloppy, but don't (laughs) worry, I'm here. I'm a systematic theologian. I'm going to make this nice and tidy. Um, But unfortunately it came out kind of messy in the actual Bible.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, that's how it works. (laughs) It just comes out clean. Yeah, that's, that's
1: right. That's right. I will straighten this up. And there is a (laughs) sense in which in the new Testament, there is a tidying or a consolidating. Like when Jesus says baptize in the name of the father, the son, And then he adds, and the Holy Spirit. You're like, well, whatever the name Holy Spirit was before Matthew 28, it is now elevated to a title that belongs in a triad that we can, you know, I can make drawings of that. Like we can make diagrams of how those things are going to be related. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't do away with the fact that in the entire rest of the Bible, the Spirit goes by a lot of different names. Um, And I think one of the points I make in that chapter is um, if you try to, put all those names in a pile and decide what they have in common it's sort of of <laughs> right. Right? which is not a lot to build on um but that does get you into processions right oh well if the spirit is the spirit of god um of the father of the son etc then there is a fromness um or a relation of uh fromness or a procession uh, going on there
0: yeah, so what are, you know, I've, I've, that's a question that I've, I've fielded a lot, especially in the last two years of teaching full time is, okay, you you say the Holy Spirit is the Lord, we look at the Nicene Creed, the Lord and giver of life. And a lot of it seems to be by insinuation, right? So it's, well, it's the Spirit of Christ here, but the Spirit of God here. It's like, well, yeah, because he proceeds from them, he points back to them. Uh, you can talk about inseparable operations. So what are some kind of handles that you want to give people as they look through and see these different spirit ofs? And um, what is kind of the, the main idea you think the Bible is teaching there? And how is that helpful uh, for us to understand?
1: Yeah. And, and it's sort of why it's, a, why it's a feature and not a bug, right? Why, it's, right. Uh, why it's, it's good that God revealed the identity of the Holy Spirit in this way. Um, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the doctrine of inseparable operations, which, um, I mean, you may have looked at this more than I have, but I, I think to teach the doctrine of inseparable operations well, you, you mostly don't go to a single verse, that teaches that instead what you do is you sort of you take an attribute or an action um, and then you hunt around in scripture um, and find that it is affirmed as being done by the father and by the son and by the holy spirit um and so you know as long as you avoid certain sort of narrowly biblicistic proof texting ways of doing that um and make sure you're fair to the context and you uh follow good good sensitive methodologies there um It's actually a beautiful exercise in doctrinal construction to sort of move around the entire canon of Scripture and assemble um, the identity of this action um, by sort of making the rounds of the three persons. Um, So that is especially the case with the Holy Spirit, um, where so often the Father and the Son are obviously, um, I don't know, conjoined or, or complicit in the same action. Like yeah. the father sends the son. Oh, clearly. Okay. They're, they're, they're both involved in that one. Um, whereas with the Holy spirit, you do kind of have to go off and find, um, find, uh, how it's alluded to uh, probably the most prominent, um, the example that's most prominent at not being prominent is the role of the Holy spirit on the cross. Yeah. Right. Where, um, Like, there's no way the third person of the Trinity is not, like, centrally active in the main point of salvation history. Right. (laughs) Um, And yet, Scripture is all but silent on the way in which the Spirit is present there. So, you really do have to move pretty quickly from a handful of verses, elusive verses at that, to sort of good and necessary consequences from what is taught.
0: Yeah, because you almost feel like you're you you do not want to say, because this is bad Trinitarianism, is he's just he's he's sitting on the sideline, he's waiting to be called in for, for the Pentecost, you know, like it's about to happen, it's all together. And that's and and you might, yeah, I would actually be interested to hear you flesh it out a little bit because that is a, a unique part of scripture where you say it's all but silent. And I want to say, of course, he's he's there, he's active. Um, and also you don't want to separate Pentecost from the cross and resurrection. Uh, Romans eight, the spirit of God raises Jesus from the dead. So you've got all that language there. Um, So do do you just say we have to kind of lean into the mystery of the silence there? Or is there any way that you kind of work through that particularly?
1: Well, there are a couple of things you could develop. Um, One is the line at the end of Hebrews that uh, Christ offered himself to the Father through the eternal spirit. Yeah. Um, You can start sort of probing that to notice that apparently sacrifices are offered in a spirit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how much of that is a figure of speech, like you have the right attitude when you're offering a sacrifice, or yeah. how much can you do some, some you know, pretty medieval Old Testament theology about the spirit in which sacrifices are offered, or, or uh, the way that they ascend to God and are received by God as sort of the spirit of the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, so apparently the sacrifice is offered in a spirit, that is, it's through the eternal spirit. Uh, that Christ offers himself to the Father. So that's a nice, tidy yep. Trinitarian thing. I've also seen, it's possible to develop what I want to say, like, I don't want to say the dark side of the spirit. That sounds like too much like the force or something. But <laughs> instead of thinking like happy, life-giving, vital thoughts about the spirit, you could go um, m- more holistic about it and say, well, you know, there's a the spirit is also involved in the wrath of God and in the judgment of God. Um, I think it's, is it John Owen, who has quite a bit about the spirit and... Uh, judgment. Um, so that, that's another route, I think, um, that would be appropriate for thinking about the way sin is being dealt with on the cross. Yeah. Think about a spirit of wrath and judgment.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you say that thing about proof texting and, and you know, taking, I always always uh, joke, and I'm sure I got this from somewhere and can't remember who it was. So, somebody out there has this in print somewhere, but, uh, you know, heretics are made one context out of, uh, one verse out of context at a time. You know, <laughs> yeah. if you want to just focus on that, then all of a sudden you have, uh, you know, Father turns his face away, the Spirit's not even there, and Jesus is just hanging out alone. You know, so it can go real bad real quickly if that's yeah. where you're building everything from.
1: Yeah, there, there are there are moments, I, you're right to warn off of saying the Spirit's on the sideline or is staged and ready, ready to go at the resurrection yeah. and Pentecost. Um, but it is an odd thing about the Holy Spirit, though, that um, He is sometimes um, intentionally left to the side in certain passages of Scripture. I think this was a real breakthrough for me in reading Romans to figure out that of the many weird things going on in Romans chapter 7, one is that it's a Holy Spirit-free zone. Mm -hmm. Right. That the spirit Mm -hmm. has been introduced and talked about a little bit in the first part of Romans. um, But then he just goes away for chapter seven. And like, as you would expect, nothing works. It's it's all just like darkness and confusion. And what is this even for? And what am I doing? Um, Then he he comes back in chapter eight and you're like, oh, well, I mean, you plug the spirit into this and it all makes sense. And you're, you know, you're trucking again with Romans chapter eight. So that is a you don't really see that happen with Christ in in any tract of scripture that I can think of. There's no, yeah, um, Anselm would say remoto Christo, right? Let's try this as if we hadn't <laughs> heard of Jesus. Yeah. Um, the Bible doesn't argue that way in any portions that I can think of, but does do that with the Spirit.
0: Yeah, no, I think that is helpful because the the lack of appearance in scripture doesn't mean, you know, even when you talk about Romans, you, the, it was originally written without chapters, you know, so even <laughs> thinking about the divisions, it's like, okay, if I were to, to read this, I would notice that, but then the Spirit would kick in And yeah, like you said, you see it all kind of come uh, to life there. So I think that's a good helpful because the Spirit, if if part of His role uh, in the mission uh, and the economy of God is to say, uh, is to point to Jesus and to uh, apply the work of Jesus and to uh, be the revelatory means at times, uh, then even I I tell my students, for example, when you're praying, when Jesus is praying in the Lord's Prayer, He says, pray to the Father in my name. Uh, one, it doesn't mean you can't pray to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but this is a pattern. Uh, but even so, as you're doing that, if you take scriptures uh, more, you know, the the larger scope of scripture together, when you're praying, you are praying in the spirit to the yeah. father by the sons. Name. He's not explicitly mentioned, but the theological insinuation is there. If you read how scripture works, you know, right. how he works in scripture.
1: Yeah. And of course it, it is explicit elsewhere. So you're doing yeah, a sure, canonical yeah. move where you're bringing it in from elsewhere, Yeah, exactly. but even even, you know, to make it most responsible when you're bringing it in from elsewhere in the same book. Like I, in Romans seven, I can tell the spirit's missing because I've already been told things about the spirit earlier yeah. in Romans or in Matthew, in Matthew's gospel. Um, in chapter 11, you know, Jesus says this thing where critical scholars will point out, suddenly he starts talking like it's John's gospel, you know, where he yeah. says no one knows the father except the son. No one knows the son except the father. And he does not mention the Holy spirit. Yeah. Um, but if you reflect on that, you say, I don't think I'm cheating. If I say, to know the Father by knowing the Son and to know the Son by knowing the Father means I'm moving in the Holy Spirit. Oh. Now, that sounds irresponsible, like I could read any doctrine, any, any text. But then you get to Matthew 28, and Jesus uses that same absolute language again, the Father, the Son. And in 28, now that he has accomplished the work, he adds the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Which I think is more grounds to go back to 11 and say, "All oh, right, the Spirit was unmentioned but present in our knowledge mm-hmm. of the Father and the Son and how they are mutually implicated. Uh, Here in chapter 11.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. That that reminds me, even when we're talking about inseparable operations, uh, Gregory of Nyssa talks about this idea that, you know, the work of God is not complete without the spirit. If you want to know how he's divine or how he's most clearly shown divine is that all of the work of the father and son is not done without him. So even that sort of, as you're saying, the silence there, I mean, you think at the beginning of Matthew, you have, uh, you know, conception of the Holy Spirit you have the Holy Spirit at baptism, you have the Holy Spirit driving him into the wilderness. So it's not like the Holy Spirit is, is not already been there. So like you said, even uh, just like in Romans, even if he may quote unquote disappear, the insinuation is that he's there.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah and there is something, especially when you're doing this gathering style of, of doctrinal construction, like you do with the doctrine of inseparable operations, there is something really wonderful about the way everything really clicks and the lights really come on when you add the Holy Spirit. because. And this, we kind of teased at this with the title of the conference and, and of the book, uh, the third person of the Trinity. Like, let's just let's just make this an issue. Let's talk yeah. about thirdness, um, yeah. because um, it's not as if the Holy Spirit is introduced last of all. Um, you know, the Spirit's been sort of suggested and uh, evoked and present earlier on, but there is some kind of a the Father and the Son, and then when the Holy Spirit becomes the explicit subject matter of our uh, intentional focus, Um, there is a wonderful completeness uh, that sort of dawns on you as you're looking at the same theological material.
0: Yeah, and that's interesting too. Uh, You brought up even the relationship between the Old and New Testament, and I kind of wrote that in my notes as a thing to talk about, because I think that's helpful as well. Uh, You know, you have, depends on who you talk to, you know, is Jesus the angel of the Lord or is the son the angel of the Lord? Is the son not even there Um, when John says that he's the word? Is any time that prophets speak or the Lord speaks that it's really just Jesus is somehow involved in some mysterious way, but the spirit is there uh, hovering over creation at the very beginning with no, you know, there's no lack of context there. It's just, it's there. And then John seems to be, you know, obviously reflecting back on that in his first chapter. So let me talk through a little bit the relationship between the Old and New Testament, because in some ways it does seem the spirit is uh, at least um, pretty obviously present at times in the Old Testament, where even the sun may not be in, this, in the same ways we'd expect. So maybe talk through that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, the spirit of God is all over the old Testament. Of course the name Holy spirit is more or less a new covenant name. Right. Um, I, th- I think that that adjective and that noun only go together twice in the old Testament. And it's not clearly about picking out a particular, you know, person. Um, um, yeah. I guess what's not clear always in the old Testament is that, is that distinct personhood, right? So how do we know the spirit of Yahweh isn't just Yahweh? Yeah. Like how do we know the Spirit of the Lord isn't just a way of talking about God in action? Um, and we probably get closest to seeing that explicitly, thematically, in, in sort of stories about indwelling, like the way in which the Lord is in the temple yeah. uh, with His indwelling glory. Um, that seems to be a cluster of ideas that, that are assimilated to the Spirit. Yeah, yeah it but, seems you like... Know,
0: I think of an example of, of uh, Saul when the Lord's spirit is removed from him. And I'm like, is that almost like an unindwelling? Indwelling? Like, is <laughs> Saul just so awful that the spirit can't even be there with him, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's the other thing is the spirit showing up as the sort of um, um, comes up on people and, um, you know, shows up as a sort of manifestation of powers, either, either a, a, an intensification of the powers that they have sort of naturally um, or a miraculous, unexplainable, like, Who set that guy on fire? It must be the spirit of God on him. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think of just the way that progressive revelation sort of unfolds. You know, there is a sense in which you don't want to say the Son and Spirit are, are, you know, not doing anything or sitting on their hands, which of course they don't have hands, which is uh, a good a good pun there. But um, you know, they're they're not not doing anything. But it becomes so clear in the New Testament, obviously, in a, in a more you know thematic and pronounced way. So, how do you talk about the Trinity in the Old Testament? What would be some handles you would give people to think about? Because we we don't want to say that it is invented in the New Testament, right? So, what are some ways that you talk through the Trinity in the Old Testament in light of these ideas?
1: Yeah. So, I picked up this word that's in all the old-fashioned books about the Trinity. Um, it'll talk about the adumbrations of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And it's just, you know, you read it a few hundred times and you realize, well, I know what that word means. It's sh- it's shadowing forth, right? Ad umbra. Um, it's a perfectly good word. It's really in the dictionary. And yet nobody uses it except these Trinity books I've got. <laughs> We're talking about adumbrations of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, and almost all of them use it. So I just decided, let's, you know, let's capitalize that or something and, and go with it. So um, I'm really comfortable talking about um, some sort of shadowy... Making known um, of the three persons uh, of the fullness of God's life in the Old Testament, Um, so that goes well with BB Warfield's statement in his classic Trinity article, where he says that the um, um, the the Trinity uh, is uh, what's he say is um, uh, the Old Testament is like a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. Yeah, and the
0: light when it comes to the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. So turning on the lights of New Testament revelation adds no furniture to the Old Testament. Uh, it just means you can see the furniture that was always there.
0: Yeah. And, that, and that's a good distinction. I, I've used that uh, before to explain that lights turning on idea because it does, it, it on the one hand doesn't say the Old Testament is just irrelevant now or didn't contain the ingredients necessary because you have to deal with the fact, it seems to me at least, and you can uh, you know, expand on this if you want, that the New Testament authors are primarily understanding personhood and the work of the son and spirit by virtue of the old testament i mean they're drawing on the psalms and other things so so we we have to do that too at some level we have to understand that that is where at least some of that those ingredients are coming from apart from you know walking and talking with jesus himself and seeing the (laughs) spirit poured out obviously that's a little different but but they're drawing on old testament passages and themes to explain these things
1: yeah well and the the forward drive of salvation history um just as In the name Messiah, in the title Messiah, we recognize an eschatological thing. Yeah, You know, good biblical theology would also uh, dictate that in the idea of the pouring out of the Spirit of God, we should also recognize an eschatological thing so that wherever the Spirit is referred to in various places in the Old Testament, there is a forward-looking prophetic element to it. Yeah. And then what's really unique about the Spirit, I think, um, is... That anything we're reading in the Old Testament as the Word of God is, in fact, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, mm. whether the Spirit is the subject or focus of the revelation or not, the Spirit is the dynamic of the revelation.
0: Well, let's move a little bit to your other book, uh, The Fountain of Salvation, mm. uh, which has an awesome cover, by the way, Matthew uh, Urban. Oh, yeah people who uh, haven't seen it Uh, and the uh, subtitle or the tag tag is Trinity and soteriology. So pretty straightforward there uh, on the one hand, Uh, but you, I think this is something that people at some level assume the Trinity is at work in salvation. You think about Ephesians one, for example, and this sort of very clear, Uh, you know, father, son, spirit work. Um, So why did you feel, uh, did you feel like there was something missing in the literature in this book, or is there there a certain way that you're trying to explain these things that might be new or helpful or or what was the sort of impetus for the book?
1: Yeah. Well, so this book, um, it really is a project in, in modern systematic theology. It's, you know, it's doing, uh, it's doing some constructive work going through the elements of the doctrine and how the doctrine of the Trinity relates to various elements of the doctrine of salvation. Um, but in terms of the, the footnotes and the dialogue partners and the sort of problems that it sets, it really is returning to this question of, um, how to relate these two doctrines in such a way that you keep them distinct to do their own work. So in a lot, in, in one mode of modern theology, there has been a tendency to, um, reduce the Trinity to kind of a function of soteriology. Um, and so I, you know as a champion of recognizing the aseity and blessedness of God. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that, like, I want a very gospel-charged doctrine of the Trinity, but I don't want to lose the Trinity into the gospel. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's one side of it. And then the other side, of course, is to make sure that you do have that, um, that the experience of the gospel doesn't make sense without drawing out and making explicit the Trinitarian grounding of it.
0: So. Yeah, and so what do you? What would you give two or three of kind of the the maybe worst examples? Some things that you see that have been some pretty clear common errors when it comes to the relationship between the Trinity and salvation.
1: Well, there's a whole mode of um, modern theologizing that sort of denies the uh, logos sarkos, right, and and um, just wants to talk about the word incarnate um, as you know as as the full identity of who the second person of the Trinity is. Mm. Um, which, you know, you understand, the people who argue like this, um, Robert Jensen, um, Jürgen Moltmann, you know, we can name others, um, you recognize what they're doing. They don't want you to get distracted from where the action is, right? In Jesus Christ, he, he is the son of God incarnate, and he, they don't want you to look off into the sky, you know, like, right, but isn't there some other word of God? Like, that's the that's the basic kind of motivation for it. The problem is, it, it makes it systematically difficult to confess the eternal generation of the sun as anything other than, you know, the, the incarnation of the sun. And so you want to be able to, you want to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. So is that, um, and so what is your sort of, I guess, your fix to that? Cause I know you've got chapters in there, eternal generation and eternal procession uh, and you've got chapters dedicated to that. So obviously that, that is important to what you're doing. So maybe flush that out a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the basic move. It is returning to the um, perfection of God, the assayity of God, and the fact that um, above all the other things we say about the doctrine of the Trinity and how it informs soteriology and other elements of, of Christian thought, um, it is first and foremost a recognition of the identity of God. Um, and so fairly traditional to work out from uh, confession of eternal relations of origin to the missions, which are actions of God freely picked up by grace in which God's identity is truly, you know, truly present.
0: Yeah. And so you talked about this being sort of a modern uh, constructive in some ways. Uh, One of the chapters you have in there is a chapter on retrieval, so I'd be interested to hear, I see you do retrieval in your work and, and, you know, we've we've maybe had some discussions here and there, but I would be interested to hear sort of your methodology in terms of retrieval versus maybe modern constructive, or not versus, but just how they, how they relate and how you see those two things together in the work that you're doing here.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I have a fully worked out, you know, theory or method of how to do retrieval. Um, I, you know, I have a hunch that I'm being lied to or that something is being hidden from me in the way theology is described in recent decades. Um, You know, anytime someone tells you, um, I'll pick an example that's not close to home. Anytime I read modern Roman Catholic theologians who say, oh, the tradition of the manuals, it was so death dealing, you know, and it just turned everything into dusty, useless information that wasn't worth having. But now we've got very exciting theology that's Mm -hmm. like some of our favorite older figures. Uh, But you got to totally skip the last 10 generations because that was trash. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think, well, I don't know. That's, I, I kind of want to see that for myself, you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to call you a liar, but but can I see what it is that you're denigrating here? Yeah. Um, so it's a hunch, but of course it has to pay off immediately. Uh, you can't just say, let me find old stuff and I will, I will just inherently value it because I'm into antiques. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in my book, The Triune God, I kind of came to terms with the question of what we're doing, and we use the categories of economic trinity and imminent trinity,
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and you start digging around in there and you realize, oh, my discovery there was that, that those categories were invented in the 18th century specifically to avoid talking about eternal relations of origin. Yeah. Well, there's a sense in which it kind of doesn't matter what you do with those tools now. If those tools were designed to keep you from talking about eternal relations of origin— Uh, you're only going to get so far or the thing you're going to produce is going to be a little bit crooked anyway. Um, so I'll still use the categories of economic and imminent Trinity. And you have to, if you're going to interact with modern theology, um, and it's, you can make lots of true sentences using those categories, but just to be aware that, oh, those were invented in a phase of theology where everyone was convinced you had to stop talking about a relation of origin within God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a, if that's your starting point, that's a, and I think that was, of all the things that, that that book was really good, but of all the things I took from it, I remember being like, oh, should I never, should I not use those anymore? And I <laughs> yeah. kind of went away from them a little bit. I mean, I try to use them a little bit, but I tend to just use ontology and economy a little bit more than talk about relations of origin and everything else, because I think you scared me away from it in the book a little bit there. So <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and I think I did quote, um, uh, there are authors like Gilles Emery who um, can use both in a way that they don't contradict each other, right? Yeah. So, the move there is to say, what some people call economic and imminent trinity, we can also describe as uh, procession and mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is true that you can do that, but um, I, you also need to be alert to the fact that it's when you stop believing in procession and mission yeah. that you have to say, yet there's still a trinity. What would we call a trinity without procession? We could call it the imminent trinity.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which I'd say,
1: well... Or yeah. we could call it the imminent trinity and continue to uphold procession.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, it does seem at least, you know, this is uh, somewhat obvious, but it does seem that you, you are uh, very good to, to, you very clearly always go back and say, okay, if this is clearly denying, uh, you know, the, the, the first couple creeds, especially, then obviously this is just out of bounds right away. Um, so how do you view some of the conversation people have had about, um, the, uh, hermeneutic of Nicaea versus the confession of Nicaea because you've got people who confess Nicaea and then, uh, they're denying all the, you know, major things that led to the confession. So how do you yeah. talk through some of that methodologically?
1: Yeah. Um, it is kind of a motto or a slogan that's gotten a little bit out of control, right? Because it, um, if you take in a maximal way, the slogan, you can't have Nicene results without Nicene methodology. Um, and it kind of locks you into agreeing with the church fathers on, um, how they got to everything they got to
0: Yeah, baptism like, and everything else. Yeah.
1: Well, there's, I mean, there's certainly that, but there's also like, you're going to have to look at Bible verses and say, you know, origin was right about this. Like, you know, um, yeah. you couldn't get, I mean, here's a test case. I don't think you could get Nicene results in terms of the concepts that were assembled for the judgments of Nicaea, um, without going through origin. Right but I'm not going to sort of exalt origin as being right about all kinds of stuff. You know, I'm going to um, he makes mistakes that are very instructive because they populate the field with a bunch of concepts, which then once those are there, you know, once those are on the, on the table, you can yeah. use those to do all kinds of things with, but um, I certainly, um, it, it's sort of like to, to take the slogan, you can't have Nicene results without Nicene method um, and just run it out all the way it's a little bit like deciding you want a study Bible with your denomination's specific doctrinal, um, interpretation of every verse, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> that, that's, it, it's, that kind of move, right? It's, yeah. it's a, it's a parallel move to that, which I think is, uh, was it Charles Hodge who said there was a suggestion in the 19th century to make like an official Presbyterian confessional study Bible with the denominations actual interpretive, um, position on each verse. Yeah. And he said only an idiot or an archangel um, would, <laughs> would think themselves capable of such a thing. Like yeah. It's one thing to say we have a confession and these are the doctrinal results. It's yeah. another thing to say this is the only way to get to those doctrinal results.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. I think there's there's probably some maximal and some minimal versions of it. I mean, you know, some of the minimal versions that I've seen would be, you know, well, if you deny eternal generation in any meaningful sense, then you've basically denied Nicaea because that's such a an important part of it. Um, so, uh, and I saw you, you know, you wrote a, a really helpful uh, response to some of that recently. And so that that was helpful. Just thinking through, um, what do we do with confessing Nicaea eternal generation? What do we do and not do with that? So, um, I ask you those questions primarily, cause I think you're always, uh, you're at least like a very level-headed, uh, you know, when everybody's angry on Twitter, Fred Sanders is always going to be the level-headed one. So, <laughs> So bring a little level-headedness to the I'll, podcast.
1: I'll, I'll put that on my CV, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I don't want to go too far from your book. The last thing I want to ask you about, you have a chapter in here on the Trinity ministry and theological education. Uh, and so I'd really be interested to hear how that uh, fits into the, the overall project of what you're doing and just what you're what you're trying to, to get out there.
1: Yeah, I, so without getting too, too meta or methodological about it, um, I, I do think that um, the doctrine of the Trinity Pulls together and gives the rationale for all of the sort of s- sub specialties within theological education and training. So, um, yeah, so so many things about sort of the dominant Berlin model of what theological education ought to be, and how you know you need to go to a you need to go to a training place where the people the the instructors have been formed by the cognate university disciplines that most inform and equip them to teach in that area. Um, there is a real disintegration of the unity of theological knowledge there. Um, and you could just be in in favor of holism in general, like, well, let's, what if it was all more unified? Um, but I think you need theological grounds to argue for that unity. And I think the Christian doctrine of God is just it. You know, there's, there are comfortable modes in which classical Christian theology moves where if you freeze the frame and say, are you doing Bible interpretation now or, or dogmatics, which one are you doing? The answer has to be like, I I don't know, I'm talking about the Trinity. It, If you're going to ask that sort of Berlin specialization kind of question about it, I I guess I could point to the phases in which I'm doing more Bible interpretation. And I, I could distinguish those from the phases in which I'm doing more dogmatics. Um, but it's actually a single unified response to God's self-revelation in Scripture.
0: Yeah, and so to take that maybe uh, down a, a step too as far as you know pastors and churches, ministers who are wanting to integrate theology into their churches and integrate it into their ministries and uh, what are some some words you have for them just in terms of what that actually might look like uh, for them to integrate some of these uh, doctrines and and even methods into their preaching and teaching and discipleship
1: yeah i mean it, it's this is not a content bearing answer, but it really is just read old books i mean um, <laughs> Uh, you just make it a regular part of your diet to consistently be going back to old books, um, on purpose to, to see what they're for. I, um, I assigned some reading recently in my, um, in, in classical theology program, I get to teach on Ephesians right now. And so we're mainly reading Ephesians, but we're also reading commentary on it from as much of the entire Christian tradition as I can. And I signed a 19th century text, and then I had to apologize to the students because, um, not only was the author using the Greek text of the new Testament as the, as the guide, right. So the guide words were all actually in Greek characters a font, which is, uh, you know, gr- Greek is not a prerequisite of the course I'm teaching. So that was, <laughs> right. you know, Oh, sorry about that. But then he was constantly interacting with Latin and he, you know, he would uh, occasionally there'd be a little bit of Syriac in there that he would argue from. Um, and I, I fu- Partly I felt bad about that, like, oh, sorry, this is too much of a hurdle for, you know, a master's level program that doesn't have a lot of prerequisites on it. Um, But I also thought this is just what it's going to be like if you're going to read. This is just the 19th century, right? We're not even really reading hard old stuff. Um, And to just help students recognize uh, you might be locked out of cross-generational fellowship with all, not only all the great minds of the, you know, the classic authors, but even the mediocre minds who were doing the best they could and doing faithful Christian theology and all the other generations. Um, we may in fact be cut off from them by only reading recent stuff.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. Um, that's one of the, uh, I always love C.S. Lewis's little introduction to On the Incarnation, where he talks about reading old books, just if nothing else, because they speak differently than you and they say, they might say, they might agree, you might agree on their conclusions but just, just that language and the way they talk helps you. You know, I, I teach on the Incarnation, use it in my classes, and I'll always point out, you know, something that John Bear points out about that, which is that and on the Incarnation, he basically doesn't talk about the virgin birth at all. And we hmm. think of Incarnation, we default to the virgin birth at Christmas. And he doesn't deny it, obviously, but um, he actually uh, probably affirms it uh, in different ways than we would. Um, but at the same time, uh, that's not what he's focusing on. So if you read something like that as you're prepping a sermon on the incarnation, you get a different perspective that you wouldn't get normally where everybody in our age is probably going to go there. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, um if you ever have John Barron ask him why St. Vlad's puts a nativity icon on the cover then, because that <laughs> seems like a strong visual cue to go in that direction that
0: is true well i think it's just it's just marketing you know you know just yeah, making sure yeah. make sure the protestants buy it that's probably that's what, what, it is. That's what
1: so. people expect go ahead and put it on there
0: yeah that's right yeah <laughs> all right well fred thanks so much this was really helpful uh thanks for taking some time to do it uh, i know i, I uh, bugged you about it i know you're making your uh, making your podcast circles so it's part of the part of the job but i appreciate you taking some time for me
1: all right we're talking with you brandon